Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sheep Get Sheared podcast. I'm your host, Austin Creed. I want to welcome you into the show this morning. So, my friends, today we're going to explore a topic that maybe you haven't been told. Maybe you've thought about, maybe if you're a scholar in any sense when it comes to Old Testament, New Testament, any kind of Christianity in general, if you've read the Bible before, you or you've gone to church, or maybe you've watched YouTube videos on Christianity, or you know people that are maybe celebrities that talk about these things, whether they be pastors or actors or whatever, you've often come against this idea of apparently it all comes down to one book, but yet everybody has an opinion about everything, right? Everybody has, there's this branch of the Christian church. There's this denomination. There's this type of philosophy. There's this kind of interpretation. And it can get really confusing. And one thing that I don't hear anybody else talking about is this idea of separating the more scripture side of things with the cultural side of things. I think it's a very important distinction. If you don't make this distinction, if you don't realize that there is a cultural integration side with the actual text, then you don't understand religion in general. Not just Christianity, but religion in general. Buddhism, from what I know, is not much different. Neither is Judaism or Islam, for that matter. Because every culture, society, people group is different, when you put a philosophy, which is what religion is, and I know some people want to say, oh, Christianity is not a religion. It's a, it's a relationship. Okay, stop, 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 stop. Okay. In my opinion, you're part of the problem. If you give me that kind of, you give me that kind of garbage. Here's, here's my first reaction. Just send the nuke, bro. At the end of the day, you're the problem. You're the reason why. People are confused. They don't understand what's going on. Sorry if that was really loud in your headphones. It was kind of loud in my headphones, to be honest with you. But we're going to jump into this topic. We're going to look at articles. We're going to look at and explore certain examples. And then we're going to see, we're going to explore two videos. And we're going to have a discussion about it, okay? Here's what we're going to, that's what we're going to do today. So first, without further ado... I would like to show you this. So I looked up on Google because I was curious what Google had to say. They, so I just said biblical versus cultural Christianity. And here's what they said. This is what the AI said. You know, obviously you take everything you hear or read on AI with a grain of salt, but we're going to read it. It says biblical Christianity emphasizes a pure heart and mind while cultural Christianity focuses on Christian values and culture. I don't know if I would phrase it like that. I'd say biblical Christianity has more to do with reading the scripture and t attempting to interpret very ancient text versus cultural is just how do you live this out? How do you actually apply this? How does this integrate with you as soon as you leave this building, as soon as you turn off this video, as soon as you go out and live your life, how does that actually apply? What does that look like? That's what cultural is. And there was a time in this country when the cultural and the religious was very molded together. Now we're seeing a lot more of a pulling apart, a separation of those ideals. Um, it says, Biblical Christianity emphasizes a relationship with God based on a pure heart and mind 
rather than externals, whereas the Bible defines a Christian as someone whose behavior and heart reflects Jesus Christ. Okay, I see what they're saying, but again, this is the kind of religion, religious Christianese that people don't often know how to interpret. Cultural Christians are non-religious people, oh, I like this distinction, who value Christian culture and adhere to Christian values. Now, this is a good, this is a good little segue. I like this. Cultural Christians are non-religious people. In other words, they're the people who go to church on Easter and Christmas. They're the people who say, oh, yeah, you know, I might have been raised Christian. I might have gone to church a couple times. You know, maybe my parents, my grandparents were Christians. You know, I mean, I, I read the Bible on, on, on Christmas or Easter or whatever. So I appreciate what they do, but I don't actually go and practice the, the sacraments and the rites and all that kind of stuff. Because they may attend church and acknowledge God, but they may not have accepted Jesus as the Son of God. Okay, I could see that. That's a good definition. Cultural Christians may pride themselves on being good and attending church, but they may not share their faith. Okay, okay. In other words, they're not zealots. They're not fervent. They're not trying to convert you. I don't personally like it when people try to convert me. I, I'll express my attitude on this show, but I'm not going to shove it in your face as, you got to agree with me. You got to agree with me. I don't, I don't do none of that. I don't, in my opinion, if your worldview is as superior as you claim, you don't have to convert me to see it. You don't have to force me to see it. I'll see it whether you're pushing it down my throat or not. Uh, it says, according to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus warned cultural Christians that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, the, the, the goats and the sheep, the separation between not everybody who says that Jesus is God will go to heaven. I'm not here to tell you who's going to go to heaven and who's not. Not my call. I'm not going to sit here and, and play that game, okay? Uh, Christian Christianity has influence in many aspects of culture. Everybody knows this. Uh, social welfare, economics, natural law, politics, architecture, literature, personal, hy personal hygiene. What? What? What does that mean? <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> what? <laughs> personal hygiene. Okay. Um, and then family life. Okay, that one's pretty obvious. All right. Okay, what do you think about that? I think that was decent. Wasn't super descriptive or anything, but it does tell you that there's a difference between reading the scripture and saying it verbatim. And I'm not, I am not saying we should read everything and interpret it verbatim because we live in a different time. We're in a different culture. For example, look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks about um, getting rid of the people who don't follow uh, people who exhibit certain behaviors, you can tell I'm kind of dancing around the issue because I know that if I say it the way it's actually said or written in the word, I'm probably going to get thrown off the internet. Then I said it 20 years ago, can't say it today. So, in other words, that's where the fuzziness comes down to, is the cultural appropriation, the cultural reading. Christianity in America is not going to be the same as it is in other places in the world. 
because that's just the application is different. The culture is different. The people is different. The heritage is different. All that kind of stuff, which is what we're talking about today. We're talking about the effects of Christianity. We're talking about this distinction between the scripture and the culture, because there is a distinction. Anybody read the Old Testament versus the New Testament, and they see the stark difference of God ain't playing in the Old Testament versus suddenly God's loving and merciful and whatnot? And I get it. I've really oversimplified that. I understand that. But I'm attempting to make a point here. I'm attempting to show you what, what we're talking about. There is a very clear distinction between God striking people down with lightning and, and plagues and all this kind of stuff versus in the New Testament, there's not a whole lot of that going on, okay? And so people can get jarred by that, but it's really just a cultural shift. I don't believe that God has changed, and I'm not here to tell you I know everything about God because I don't. But at the end of the day, I believe it to more be a cultural shift in a different direction. And also the interpretation as well. But we're going to also, another example of this cultural shift that I want to share with you is this. The idea of marriage, whether it be monogamy versus polygamy. And this is a very important distinction. Why? Well, because, let's read the Old Testament. I brought up the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17 says, If a man has two wives, see, right off the gate, two wives. He's talking about a multiple marriage. Plural marriage. In the Bible, from what my interpretation, and I'm not a biblical scholar, I don't pretend to know everything. This is just a conversation. But I notice in the Old Testament, there's talk about multiple marriages, but there's almost no talk of divorce. God hates divorce. But yet in America, we have a high divorce rate, and re divorce is pretty regular, versus multiple marriage is criminal according to the state law. So I have to ask you, what do you think would be worse, multiple marriages or uh, divorce? And you know what I thought was really interesting? I did some research on this, and I really want to share something with you, because when people talk about polygamy, they immediately assume that, oh, dude just wants to get more vagina, dude wants to have more access to women. No. In Africa, according to my understanding, in Africa, it is a responsibility. It is not based off of lust. It is based off of something that is expected. If you have more to give, then that is what is expected of you. In Europe, there's this huge um, prostitution class of women. And this is not a new thing. This has been going on for thousands of years. Okay, this is nothing new. But you look at the, in the European sector versus the African sector, in Africa they have... Um, polygamy, polyamory, and stuff like that, not because the people are lustful, but because if you have more resources, you have a duty to provide for more people, versus in Europe, where they believed in monogamy, there were the married women, and then there were the prostitutes. There were the married women, and then the prostitutes. There were not men with multiple wives, because you could afford to, and because it was his responsibility, but because there were he couldn't. So we had mistresses on the side instead. Instead of having three wives, he had one wife and then two women on the side. Or maybe even more than that. But that's the, that's the point. Is people want to think that polygamy, oh man, what polygamy because of lust? Well, maybe some do. But for the most part, it's this idea of providing for more people because if you have more to give, 
then you have more responsibility. Instead of having more taxes, most of these taxes that we get thrown at us is to support EBT, WIC, and all these programs to support single women and their children. Why don't we just allow polygamy and when we decentivize divorce and we penalize divorce on both parties? You know what's funny is child support has become almost like a testicle tax. In other words, if you're the man, it's your fault. If you're the man, you gotta pay. But if you're a woman, eh, you know, maybe if you make millions of dollars, we'll put you on the hook. If you're famous, we'll put you on the hook. But other than that, no, if you're the dude, it's your fault. That's stupid. No. No, that's that's not how it works. But, again, this comes down to the application versus the ideas. A lot of these Christian, a lot of these um, African countries are Christian, but they practice this type of behavior. Not because they're lustful, according to my understanding, but because they view it as a responsibility. Versus in Europe, like I said, there was the married women, and then the non-married women who were usually prostitutes. And I'm not saying that to degrade them. I'm saying that they were the married ones, the non-married ones. Instead of them being married, they, they couldn't. They couldn't get the man they wanted because the man they wanted was just unavailable. He was already married. So as I said, they slept with him on the side instead of marrying him because the law just didn't allow it. So what do you think about that? I think it's interesting. And to tie into Christian morality, you might say, well, Austin, you know, I kind of believed in the Christian church, but the church is not the same as it used to be. Uh, I'm not liking it. The programming's not what I like and whatnot. Well, you know what? We're going to look at a video from uh, Pastor Ma um, Mark Driscoll. Shout out to him. Um, I actually have been to this man's church. I think he does a pretty good job of seeing the cultural issues and discussing them. Now, I think he drops the ball in certain areas, but that's just me and having a difference of opinion with him. I think he's wise. I think he's intelligent. And I think he overall has a very clear speaking voice. And I think he does a really good job. Okay. So I'm going to fair use his little, his uh, discussion here, his short video, and then we're going to discuss it. All right. Well, let's hop into this. Statistically, 60% of churchgoers are women. The majority of the, there's, in addition, the least likely person to go to church is a young single man. Hmm. Who needs to go to church the most? <laughs> a young single man, right? So the question is, well, why are they not in the church? I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, um, how do I say this? Um, let me explain it to you culturally. What has happened historically in our nation has affected the church, and that is in many generations, all the young men left the country to go to war. He makes a really good point right out the gate. Again, this is a history of the Christian church that not a lot of people will understand or know, okay? You want to know why a lot of the women are kind of running the church behind the scenes? Why a lot of the men are henpecked? Why they won't talk about these really blaring in your face siren level issues? Why they're afraid? Why they're kind of tippy-toeing around important issues? Well, he's highlighting why. A, because a lot of men went to war and they died and they didn't come back. And two, because when they were gone for those years, both in Europe and in Asia, the women ran the church. The men who were weak, who couldn't go physically, couldn't go because they were too old or whatever, they stayed behind. So it was the weak men 
and the women who ran the church. And that we see those ramifications to this day. And he's going to, I think he's going to go into that. So you take all the young men out or many of the young men out. And I pulled it up at the end of World War II. And I would say that's an example of Satan's sons against God's sons. It's literally a war against good versus evil, which I think explains much of human history. What happens in World War II is at the end of World War II, there were about 140 million Americans. And there were over 12, almost 13 million in active duty military service. So I want to pause him again. I had to pause him for fair use purposes. Okay, I understand you probably want to see all of it all the way through without being interrupted. If you want to do that, you can go watch the video without my commentary. But he makes another good point here. He makes a good point of there was a different cultural attitude back in the day. Today, we see the cultural attitude all everywhere. Weakness is celebrated. Uh, if you're different, then you're better than someone who's not. And we see that even in, in that is leaked into the church. We see that in the church. Feminism is in the church. The LGBTQ rainbow people have come into the church. All these people are leaking slowly into the church. And I believe it started right here. This, is, this was the big game changer in the church, not just for Christians, but for a lot of different people. But I want to talk mainly about the Christian church. And I think he's doing a good job of highlighting how the men have changed. That's around 9% of the whole population of America is in the military going to war. So guess what? The young men are gone. They're gone. And what the young men do, they join the military, where true or false, they get strong male leadership and brotherhood. I can ver personally verify that to be true. I mean, have you been in the military? Yes. This is what I'm told. Strong male leadership and brotherhood. Meanwhile, back at home, who's left in church? Women and children. Women and children. And we love women and children and women and children need to be in church and we, we want good for them. But all the strong young men were off at war. So then the young, the, the women in the church, they decide that they're going to run the church. And that right there is the, the problem. And ladies, I'm not saying this to degradate you. I'm not saying this to attack you. What I'm saying is women are not naturally leaders. There are some women who can lead. This is true. But they are not naturally born leaders. Not all men are born leaders. But men tend to make better leaders than women. If you look at statistics, you look at biochemistry, this is an unavoidable fact of reality. But that's not the point I really want to discuss. When I look at what he's talking about, when you look at the attitude of the modern Christian church, it is geared towards women. This, the love and the building of the family and whatnot is not coming from a masculine perspective. It is coming from a female perspective. How do I know that? Well, let's just look at it like this. Uh, let's say you're 25. You know, you're, you're a younger guy. Let's say you're 30 years old and there's a woman who comes in the church. Or maybe she's been in the church for a while, but she's not married. They will take that 30-year-old woman and pay, pair her with a 30-year-old man saying that, Oh, you should marry her because she's a good woman. She's a good godly woman. 
Uh, no, she isn't. In fact, she's been out here riding the rooster roller coaster. She's been out here doing backflips, front flips, uh, riding back, horseback riding, everything on all these dudes. But you won't tell me that. You're not telling your young men, hey, you can marry her if you want, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to deal with her not being loyal. You're not going to be able to meet her needs because you're not Chad or Tyrone. She's going to compare you. All these things are going to happen to you. Now, I'm not going to tell you whether that's good or bad. No, I'm going to tell you it's bad. Okay, it's, it's, it's horrible for men. Is it good for women? Oh, hell yeah. They can do whatever the hell they want and then find find their good man and then run his pocketbook if things don't work out. But again, it's to benefit the women because the women kind of set it up that way when they took over the church, according to what I understand, all right? So all of a sudden, the church starts to look like women decorated it. Hmm. It starts to smell like women decorated it. And since there's no men, all the programming is for the women and children who do need love and service. And so they hire a guy who's older. He's not off to war. He's retired. He's kind of like a really kind-hearted grandpa who's going to love the women and the children. Oh, hell no. So the church works for women and children. Now they need to find a guy to lead worship. This is where it gets offensive. I love the poorly educated. Um, and all the men, the strong men are off of war. So we'll find a really nice guy and he can lead the worship. So the least masculine guy leads the worship. Uh, <laughs> this is the worst kind of discrimination, the kind against me. I mean, is he, is he lying? Does anybody want to sit here and tell me he's lying? Because he's not. He's not lying. Not criticizing, I'm just observing. Skinny jeans, deep V-neck, frosted tips, unemployed, <laughs> profoundly emotional. Um, not a voice quite like mine, okay? He makes a good point here, and this is the problem. When you look at younger guys who are not going to church, or who tried it kind of like me and they're like, I can't really find a good church that I actually like because I fundamentally have a huge difference of opinion with them. A lot of times men will feel, they'll feel kind of like this. You lied to me. That's how they'll feel. They'll feel like they got lied to. They'll think that you're kind of pull one over on them or you're trying to benefit somebody who's not them. It's one thing to call everybody out equally. It's another to kind of either directly or indirectly be benefiting one group over another group while sidestepping a huge philosophy that's grown in certain years. And I'm I, look, I don't, I'm not here to tell you what the hell you want to do, but when guys are out here and we are trying to d build ourselves, improve, start our careers, do all these things. And then people want to tell us, Oh, get married and just roll the dice. We tend to question it a little bit. Well, this is getting weird. And that's just the reality of it. I don't know what else to tell you. Let's, let's keep, what else does he have to say? Okay, so in the Old Testament, the worship leader was a guy named David who also was good at killing people, okay? What? It's not that guy, okay? So we have a nice older guy as the grandpa and then his confused grandson leading worship, emotionally connects with all the women and children, 
The men come back from war. They show up at church. Huh? Well, this is getting weird. I, I, I'm not going to listen to that guy. And I can't sing with that guy. Like, I can't get in that octave unless I have an injury. Like, you know. <laughs> okay, he, he makes a good, a good point here with they kind of brought the masculine level down and down and down and made it more feminine. Feminine is not equal bad. It just means that the men can't be men anymore. It means that you are penalized for talking like a man, acting like a man. You're penalized for that. Oh, you're toxic. Oh, you're bitter and hurt. Oh, you don't understand. Gaslighting, projecting, uh, sidestepping, slandering, you name it. They're facing all of it. I face it today. And so I can only imagine how these guys who fought Nazis and the Soviets and the Japanese, uh, the Imperial Japanese, they come back and they're like, they come out into church and they hear this dude singing at high octaves. They walk into church, they're probably sounding like, Oh my God! And I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. And this is an aspect of Christianity that people are not talking about. And so I think we need to keep listening to this. You know, I can't... <laughs> I would need to not wear a cup to hockey night and then I could sing with that guy. So the men walk in, they're like, this feels like a feminine environment. It sounds like a feminine environment. It seems like it's for women and children. And the men left the church and they never came back. Yep. They never came back. And here's the big idea. True or false, women feel comfortable in a masculine environment if it's not angry and aggressive. Can you take your girlfriend to a sports bar? Yeah. Do men feel comfortable, healthy, normal men? We now got to say that today. Healthy, normal, heterosexual men, do they feel comfortable in a profoundly feminine environment? Oh, hell no. no. I've never seen a guy, he's like, yeah, I can't wait to go get my nails done. And if you're that guy, you, you need to be honest because you need help immediately. So... <laughs> Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> oh, oh, this is reprehensible. Oh, man. Hey, you know what? I mean, he, he's not lying. He's not. I mean, people are going to say, ooh, he's wolf whistling. Ooh, he's hating. Blah, blah, blah. Stop it. Please just go away. Just, just, just go away, please. The adults are talking here. Women will go to a nail salon, but men won't go. Women will go to a sports bar. And so what we did, we created an environment that works for all the women and repels all the men. So here's why you're here. God is a father. Jesus Christ is the son of God. To be a true man is to be like Jesus, tough and tender, lion and lamb, worshiping the father with daily decisions, sacrifices and service, as well as singing and songs. And I wanna honor you men for being here. And this is the whole reason we do this ministry. We're trying to create an environment where men can learn what it means to be sons of God and worship to become like their father. Hey, shout out to Mark. I appreciate that. Uh, I don't agree with everything he ever says, but on that one, I'm leading to be 100% in the right. It's interesting when you talk about the, the moralities like the morality, the ethics, and whatnot of Christianity, a lot of people want to buck when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible, when it comes to, you know, rainbow people, when it comes to women and what patriarchy, whatever it is you want to say. 
And there's there are negative sides to the Christian moral doctrines and whatnot, and we're going to explore that actually right now. In fact, I want to share this video um, from Wisecrack. Shout out to them. So we're going to take a little bit of an opposite approach here, and we're going to look at we're going to look at the following question: Does Christianity make us weak? Hmm. Well, let's let's listen to this and see what they have to say. Fair use. Imagine, dear viewer, that a basketball team crushes its opponent by over 100 points. In the world we live in, the winning coach may get fired for such a display. Certain children's leagues refuse to even keep score, and participation trophies abound. That's a really good point. And uh, I don't know about you, but I despise the participation trophies. I think celebrating mediocrity is stupid. Um, from the Mr. In you ever seen The Incredibles, the old Disney movie, where um, he's talking about, it's a ceremony, he's like, it's psychotic, they come up with new ways to celebrate mediocrity, but if they actually do something exceptional, that's all I think, that's what I think, is we need to stop celebrating mediocrity, because then it makes people who are exceptional think they're no different from the people who are mediocre. And it gives the people who are mediocre a false sense of accomplishment and security. And they think that they've done enough. They're good enough. No, you should always want to be better, not just be comfortable where you are. Because if you are, someone's going to pass you up very relatively quickly. But I think they make a good point right out the gate. Mediocrity is celebrated, applauded, and encouraged, while the celebration of excellence is frowned upon. But where does this desire for mediocrity come from? For Friedrich Nietzsche, the answer is simple, Christian morality. The Christian ethos and its call for piety, obedience, reciprocity, compassion, moderation, and equality, the Christian metaphor of a shepherd and his flock, all are symptoms of a weak form of morality. These beliefs stem from an inability to deal with the strengths of other people, of a need to be led. Strength, cunning, brilliance, exuberance, and wealth. These are the things society ought to value, yet they are devalued. This is another really good point. You know, I'm not saying that if you're rich or whatever, that you're, quote, a more human or a better human being than the other person. What I am saying is these things are valuable. They have substance to them. And to say anything else, you'd just be lying. That doesn't mean everybody. That doesn't mean that we have to follow the philosophy of the Ubermensch and the Untermensch, but it goes to show that we need to celebrate things that are actually worthy of celebration instead of just encouraging mediocrity and praising people for being average. I think that's disgusting. I truly think it's disgusting. I, I think he's making a decent point up until now. In his book, On the Genealogy of Morality, Nietzsche uses the example of lambs and birds of prey. Large birds carry lambs away to their death on a pretty regular basis. It would be understandable for the lambs to call birds evil, but to Nietzsche the terms good and evil don't make sense because the will to power complicates these concepts. I think he makes another interesting point. I love the sheep analogy. I mean why I named my show the sheep get sheared i think the sheep are the ones who get played the most and it is my desire 
for you to not be a sheep, a lemming, a loser, and for you to elevate yourself and to be grow some horns and not and prevent yourself from being thrown away by a bird of prey or being sheared by the wolves or or devoured by the wolves. But I, I understand this might makes right argument. It's a little dangerous when taking to extremes. But when we talk about it from a pure philosophical standpoint, I mean, the masses are going to lose to the people on the top of the pyramid. So, of course, they're going to call them evil because they're, they are not benefiting from what the people at the top are doing. And so, of course, they would call it evil. I mean, that makes total sense. Does that make them right? No. Just because more people say something does not make them right. That's the ad populum fallacy in philosophy. So let's keep going. The will to power is the drive to maintain control, power, and success in life. Nietzsche famously asserted that this world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. The world that we live in is one in which people, all life, compete to strive and even flourish. Each species has different instincts and strengths. Met tools use hard hats for protection. Tiger and lion bots eat tourists. And Iceman uses his cold, steely eyes to freeze his prey. I mean, he's making funny comparisons, but I, again, I see what he's saying. It's the natural selection argument. Those who are strong will survive and those who are weak will perish. We all know that. That's Darwinian science. We know that. Anyone who says that Darwin was completely lying... You're, you're a moron. I like Nietzsche overall. Nietzsche overall, I think, has good points. I don't think he, everything he says is correct. However, I think he makes a good point here. And just because you're making yourself better does not mean you have to pull someone else down. In fact, I would discourage you from doing that. Because that means you're not improving, you're just degradating somebody else. The will to power isn't just biological. Every choice we make all of the techniques that we use to live a happy and content life are all part of our will to power, of our desire to thrive in the world. If a tiger eats a tourist, that's good for the tiger, not the vacationer. For Nietzsche, the will to power is that part of us that annihilates moral considerations. From the beginning of time, the lions of the world have eaten the lambs. I think he makes another good point here of anyone who uses morality as a shield is a weak person, okay? Jordan Peterson was the first person I heard this idea from of you need to be a monster. The difference between the hero and the villain is not, it it's, lies within, the hero has the capacity to do evil but chooses to do good versus the villain chooses to do, could do good but chooses to do evil. Now, I don't believe it to necessarily be that simple. I also think there's this element of both of them are going to do despicable things, but whoever wins gets to cast themselves as the hero, which ties back into this idea of weakness and the will of the will to power and might makes right and all that. So I understand what he's saying. If you only use morality as your shield to defend your behavior and attack the people who are doing better than you, you're losing. You're, you're losing. Because that's not, that's not going to get you anywhere besides maybe a couple pat on the backs in the, on a chat in the internet. Though one may argue that's not how the world ought to be, that's just the way it is.
facts. Through the valorization of a single code, a universal morality that dictates what is good and evil, Christian morality keeps people in line. It renders people an undifferentiated mass that smothers the individual's will to power. It gives people a convenient excuse to be ordinary. I, I hear what he's saying and I kind of agree. However, this is also kind of ties into the will of power, whether on purpose or indirectly, because the people who are then giving the instructions and converting people to mediocrity, as he might say it, that means then that they're benefiting. They're using the will to power to control people and gain wealth, gain power, gain prestige, gain all these things that he talked about earlier. So either way, natural selection ties in. In other words, the strong will win and the weak will perish. That goes across all boards, all, philosoph all philosophic thought, everything. But again, I think he makes a, a good point, but I think he's taking it to an extreme. Most of the time, people resist the urge to stand apart. They're afraid to be different, to be alone, and are more likely to assimilate. But That's Nietzsche true. thinks people should aspire to be exceptional. People may feel smug when a coach gets fired for running up the score. Perhaps it feels good to blame a loss on deflated footballs, to vilify others for success. Lambs may feel justified hating birds of prey. The large birds of prey value their strength, while lambs of the world value their unimportance. That is... <laughs> Yo. <clears throat> he's making a really... He, he's knocking y'all over the head with the philosophy today. First of all, that is true. Most people are afraid to go their own way, do their own thing, get away from the flock, the crowd, the herd, whatever. People are hesitate. They hesitate to do that because then it makes them a target. I've done that. I encourage you to have the will to do that because then it makes you stronger. The crowd is not always the place to be. In fact, rarely is it the place to be. I like this little quilt he has down here in the bottom of the screen. We are weak. That's good too. Weakness is not good. You are making your necessity a virtue. You are making the only thing you have to offer a virtue because you know you have to be right. People have this inherent desire to always be right. That means that even if you are weak, you will find a way to say, no, I'm not weak. I'm actually strong when in fact you're not weakness and passive nature plainly speaking the lamb hates the bird because the bird is better than it so dear viewer how many participation trophies do you own so thank you for that wisecrack shout out to them you go check out their channel you know what it's a very interesting idea truly to talk about this idea of moral superiority um Christian philosophy and whatnot. It's interesting to hear it from a different perspective because I don't think you need to be a diehard in any one direction. I think having a balanced worldview will get you farther than having just, this is the only way, this is the only right way, and if you're, you say anything else, then you're wrong. And if anybody ever questions you, instead of having a debate with them, you kind of default to this kind of, you kind of default to a defensive situation and a defensive stance. This is the worst kind of discrimination, the kind against me. I think it's good for people to challenge you, challenge your worldview, challenge how you interpret these stimuli around you. And so, my friends, what do you have to say about this? Are you Christian? Are you not? Are you religious? Are you not? What do you believe? Has Christianity helped the world? Has it hindered the world? 
What is your thoughts on all this? I think it's a very, there's a lot of questions we've explored today. And I think that I want you to do some of the talking. I want you to express your thoughts, your feelings, whatever it is you want to express. You can do it in the comment section or you can go over to my to my X page as Sheep Get Sheared. Hit me in the DMs. My DMs are open. Anybody can hit me up. You can reply to any one of the tweets that I have. There's thousands of them if you want. I just ask you to be respectful. We can have a discussion. If you're going to come at me and insult me, I'm not going to indulge you because I just don't have the time for that. So my friends, I, want, I leave the ball in your court. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that what you should take away from this. That is up to you. I encourage you to ask questions, stay informed, stay vigilant, and always be on the lookout because people are trying to pull one over on you. And I want you to realize that and understand that if you doing what's right for you doesn't make you a bad person. My friends, stay vigilant, stay informed, question everything that comes your way, and I'll see you on the flip side. Take care of yourselves. I'm out of here. Peace. Thank you.